Okay, sounds like we're on. Do you have a bucket list? A list of things that you hope to accomplish. Maybe it is a country that you wish to travel to. Maybe it's a task that you would like to accomplish. What is on your bucket list? If you could look at my bucket list today, you would see a top item that I should hope many of you can resonate with. My greatest ambition, the top goal of my life outside of spiritual things, of course, is to go great white shark cage diving. Are you all with me this morning? All right, thank you. And I had the absolute dream opportunity. I was living in the beautiful country of South Africa for about a total of three months. And while in South Africa, as you may know, that's where Seal Island is. That's where all the great white sharks have their snacks. That's where they love to hang out. And that's where great white shark cage diving is affordable. So clearly, as soon as I arrived, I signed up for this excursion, much to the chagrin of my poor parents. And I told my mom about the first day where I'd signed up for it, okay, I'm going on Tuesday, and she's like, okay, I'll be praying, and I'm like, please don't. And I received a call the night before. There had been a bad storm that was coming up across the ocean. They said, I'm sorry, we'll have to reschedule. We can't go and see the sharks. So clearly, I quickly rescheduled. My mom said, I'll keep praying. <laughs> and that Sunday, I received a phone call prior to my great adventure. I'm sorry, we've had no shark sightings for a week. It's canceled. And as you can imagine, with this being my top bucket list item, I was incredibly disappointed. And there I was, driving around Cape Town, when my boss turned to me and said, Carissa, do you see that? And he pointed up into the sky, hundreds of feet above, and there I saw a person paragliding through the air. Carissa, why don't you do that instead? With excitement beginning to rise once more, I signed up for a paragliding excursion there in the beautiful city of Cape Town, South Africa. But this time there was a drastic change, a, a significant difference I did not tell my mother. <laughs> And so there I was, climbing up this beautiful mountain named Lion's Head. My guide, who had had many years of experience, told me this. There are three points on this mountain from which we can jump. It all depends upon the direction of the wind. And so we climbed to the first point of which we could potentially jump. And there we noticed two other individuals, gliders, and the first individual was just about to take off. 
And my guide turned to them and yelled out and said, don't jump. The wind is going the wrong direction. You are going to crash. And these men turned to him and said, we know what we're doing. We've done this plenty of times before. And my guide began to mutter loudly under his breath, those men are crazy. What are they thinking? And then, of course, a few other choice words. They're going to crash. And I saw as the paraclider put on his equipment and he began, the first one, to run towards the edge of the cliff. Now that's what you have to do with paragliding. You run to the edge of the cliff with all that you have in you. And there is no stopping point. And when you reach the edge of that cliff, you better hope that the wind catches you and you soar. And so there he runs as fast as he can towards the edge of the cliff. And as he's nearing the edge, suddenly the wind strikes up and it catches him. And he begins to soar. But not a moment later, the wind shifts and his paraglide dips and crashes back into the side of the mountain. We look at each other back and forth in terror. His partner is standing there on the edge of the cliff. He can't see him. He's calling on the walkie-talkie. Do you hear me? Are you okay? Do you hear me? Are you okay? Silence. After, of course, what seemed like an eternity, the call is returned. I'm alive. I'm cut. I'm bleeding. I'm stuck in a tree. And his partner began to hurry to the side to help him back up the edge of the mountainside. Meanwhile, my guide turns to me and says, let's go. <laughs> I was like, what do I do? I don't know how to help. I was felt very stuck in that moment. And, and so I just mindlessly began to follow my guide as he was quite miffed off by their decision. So we reached the second landing point and the guide again tested me and said, nope, the wind's not good, we're not jumping. But we had hope there was point number three and we reached stage number three and the guide turned to me once more and said, nope, the wind's not good, we're not jumping. Good night, I haven't even told my mom this time and still I can't even get a good jump. And we began to descend down that hill, reaching again point one where the other paraglider jumped. He was now sitting on a boulder on the edge of that mountainside, and I could see that he had blood trickling down onto his shoulder. We quickly approached him and we said, can we call for help? Do you need assistance? Do you want water? Is there anything we can do? And the man just flat out said, leave us alone. And suddenly I heard the words of my guide as he called out once more, Carissa, Let's jump. Let's what? As I turn and I look at the man sitting there, his white shirt, shirt now soaked with blood. Let's what? You see, the wind had shifted once more, and, and now was the time. It was the perfect time to jump. But you see, as strange as it may sound today, in that moment, I felt 
no fear. Time and again, my guide had proven himself to me. No, not jumping, wind is bad. Nope, not jumping, nope, not jumping. And because he had so many times said no, and I saw his wisdom therein, my confidence in him had grown. And so now when he said, Carissa, let's jump, I was on board, let's jump, let's go. And we put on the pack and we strapped on to each other and he said, whatever you do, do not fall. And on the count of three, I began to run as fast as I could towards the edge of the cliff with no turning back. And I ran and I ran as the cliff approached and I didn't die <laughs> here today. And instead, we soared over beautiful Cape Town, over the ocean, and over the beautiful hills below. That day, to me, was a beautiful illustration of a guide who has led me thus far, of a guide who has never failed, and of a guide who will bring me safely home. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father God, I feel so incredibly honored for us to all be here today worshiping you, lifting you up as the Lord and the Savior that you are, Father. And Lord, I thank you for this hallowed time that you have gifted to us, this holy place. And so, Father, I pray that Jesus and Jesus alone may be lifted up. May his heart and his words speak. We thank you, we trust you, in Jesus' name, amen. I hope I didn't discredit myself by that story. In 13 words, his biography was unveiled. Solely 13 words, and yet they stood in such stark contrast to the world around him. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9 says, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Noah was the tenth and the last of the pre-flood patriarchs. A bit more of his story is told in Hebrews chapter 11, if you will turn with me there. We are in Hebrews chapter 11, looking at verses 6 and 7. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 6 and 7. The Bible says that without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Did it take faith 
to believe in a flood. Certainly to believe in the concept of a global flood that would destroy all that could be seen. But how much more so when up to this moment rain did not even exist? When solely dew and mist had watered the earth, they had never experienced a drop of rain. Now granted, here in California, we can resonate with that a little bit more. <laughs> but this is a brand new concept, so naturally they are going to be skeptics. We are told that God said to Noah that this flood would come. How did God say it? Well, we don't know if it was a dream or, or a vision. But because Noah walked with God, because he was righteous through Christ, a just man, in his generations, he revealed, or he recognized it, I should say, as the voice of God speaking to him. And yet, clearly, the skeptics doubted how this could be possible, how this could be feasible. Skepticism is certainly not a new concept. We see its origins there in the Garden of Eden. When the devil is saying to Eve, has God really said? We see it continue throughout the Bible and certainly in our lives today, but throughout the Bible, as, as people would come to individuals like Joseph, the brothers coming to Joseph and saying, yeah, do you really think your dream's going to be fulfilled? Do you really think we're going to bow down, that your mother, your father are going to bow down before you? Skepticism coming to Nehemiah. Yeah, sure, you're called to rebuild this city. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? And ultimately, the skepticism that Jesus too experienced. If you are the Son of God, cast thyself down. Turn this bread, this stone, into bread. You see, many times throughout his ministry on earth, individuals came to Jesus with questions, with doubts. And Jesus always welcomed the questions that were voiced. They were met with compassion. They were met with hospitality. They were met with understanding. But on the contrary, is skepticism. The thing that tries to undermine our faith, and, and too often skepticism, though lauded for its sophistication and its philosophical nature, is merely unbelief in disguise. I remember as a little girl, especially on Friday evenings, I loved to pull out, do you all remember those blue books with all the Bible stories in it? pulling those out and sitting by the fireplace, sitting by the couch, and, and just reading through these Bible stories and, and seeing the pictures of the animals going into the ark, two by two and seven by seven, and just thinking, what would it have been like in that moment to be there? Clearly, I pictured myself and Noah's family, and not on the other side. What would it have been like? But in stark contrast 
to this story that I believe is true is the concept or the theory of deism, which is truly just the parent of theistic evolution. If you're not familiar with the term deism, let me describe it here briefly. Deism is a belief in God based on reason rather than on revelation or the teaching of any specific religion. This word, deism, originated in England in the 17th century as a rejection of Orthodox Christianity. Deists asserted that reason could find evidence of God in nature and that God had created the world, but then he left it to operate on its own natural laws. By the late 18th century, deism was the dominant religious attitude among Europe's uh, educated class. And as you probably know, our first three presidents of the United States were deists with this belief that God set the world into motion and then let it go, and was removed and was absent. This form of deism does not scare me, as it is so clearly rebuffed through the tangible example of Jesus Christ. But what does scare me is deism as it comes in its more sinister forms. As you may know from my bio, I am a chaplain. And I had the opportunity, especially during my, my residency working at hospital, to be able to interact with patients and to journey with them through all different life experiences, but certainly in critical care and trauma situations. And something happens to you, something changes you when you stand by the bedside of over a hundred people as they die. How, how can you remain the same? Something, something changes. And I found myself in the last couple of years wrestling and albeit I did not realize it was under this name, but essentially wrestling with deism. Because you have to come to a point of saying, either God is a personal God and he's here and he's crying and he's hurting, or God just doesn't care. I have prayed beside the bedside of hundreds of people and I have watched over a hundred more die. Where is God in that wrestling? Many of you have worked in COVID units. Many of you have also worked in healthcare settings and, and many of us have lost loved ones or gone through our own life crisis. And maybe you can relate to this struggle with deism. In fact, I remember when my friends would ask me, hey, Carissa, would you pray for me? And especially if I had just come off after a long shift at the hospital, I'd be like, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure you want me to pray? Because I pray for people and they die. There's something happening here. And again, I begin to wrestle through this. And what does it say about God? Where is he in the day-to-day -day struggle 
that we encounter. And I began to realize that I was afraid of praying prayers larger than I myself could answer. Afraid of praying prayers that were not humanly possible to accomplish. Have you been there before? Maybe feeling a need to try and protect God. Well, what if it doesn't happen? It'll destroy God's reputation. Therefore, I will pray small. That way I can accomplish it. And whether or not we so clearly articulate our experience, I think we can relate. Now, again, as a chaplain, I could speak to you at nauseum about the dangers of false hope about the necessity of not treating God like a genie that I can conjure up and tell him how you are to accomplish this miracle. And certainly the importance of following the model of Jesus Christ, where he told the Father, but not my will thy to be done. Yes, these principles are so crucial and relevant. But that's not the ditch that we often find ourselves in, the false hope. Instead, could it be the other ditch of not believing that God can accomplish what God has said that he will? In being unwilling to pray prayers that only divinity can answer. Deism, as we see in the story of Noah, is just not a new concept. In the beautiful book, Patriarchs and Prophets, if you hadn't had a chance to read it yet, I'd highly encourage it, as it is a beautiful devotional picturing the lives of these patriarchs of old. In page 97, this quote is shared. The world before the flood reasoned that for the centuries, the laws of nature had been fixed. So in other words, way back in Noah's time, they believed in deism. The reoccurring seasons had come in their order. Up to this time, rain had never fallen. The earth had been watered by a mist or dew. They reasoned, as many reason now, that nature is above the God of nature and that her laws are so firmly established that God himself could not change them. Reasoning that if the message of Noah were correct, nature would be turned out of her course, and that made that message in their minds a delusion, a grand deception. No, no, seasons have always come, seasons have always gone. The rivers have always stayed in their banks and they've flowed nicely by. There's no way that such an event is possible. But you see, that is simply the nature of divinity. I cannot control it. It is beyond human understanding and capability. The Bible pictures many stories greater than our understanding or our ability to accomplish, such as, again, creation and this world being created by the fingerprints of God, of the flood, 
of the Red Sea, of people being raised back to life, and certainly as Christians, the ultimate story of a Messiah who died and rose the third day. Stories that are beyond human ability. But note this this morning. The Bible makes no apologies for the greatness of God. God does not pretend to be limited by the limitations, the limitations of humankind. Let me say that again. God does not pretend to be constrained by the limitations of humankind. If these stories are too implausible to be believed, then how could I possibly believe that God could work a miracle in my life? That God can look on this barren land and transform me to become like him. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15 as this rhetorical question is answered. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. The Bible says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Now, especially in this context, what, what things were written before? Well, the story of creation, the story of Abraham and Isaac, the story of the Red Sea, the story of the plagues in Egypt. All of these great things were written before. Why? Why were they written? The verse continues that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have what? Hope. Why did God record or have his servants record these seemingly impossible events? Well, because first of all, they are true. And secondarily, so that you and I today, in the impossibilities of our own lives, could have hope. Hope, as we know, is not past tense. Hope is present. Hope is real. Hope is future. Hope is strength for the journey. And yet there in the ark, Noah did not go immediately from hearing the message of God that a flood would come unto the day of the flood's arrival. No, of course, there were 120 years of building that ark and 120 years of, of speaking. But even after that time occurred and all the animals miraculously came to the ark and the door was shut, there Noah waited in the ark for seven days. You can probably imagine 
the jeering, the parties, the insults that were occurring outside the doors of those arcs. Yeah, Noah, three days have passed. Yeah, Noah, four days have passed. Yeah, Noah, where's that faith on day number six? Patriarchs and Prophets records that their faith was tested as this seven-day period continued. Have you ever slept in a barn? When I was a, a teenager, we decided we were going to go on a great adventure, and we were going to take our horses camping. So you ride by day and you tie them up nearby during the night and you sleep out under the stars and then ride off into the sunrise in the morning. And it sounded so beautiful and romantic. But if you've ever tied a horse 10 feet away from you at night, the smell is anything but pleasant. <laughs> and here again, Noah is on this ark and what did I do? What am I thinking? Now all these stinky, but you know, at the end of the day, even though in my human mind, that's what he's complaining of, I think, again, the struggle is greater than that. He's leading his family into this ark. They've left their careers. They've left their plans. They've left friends behind. Now they're being teased and taunted. Was it the voice of God I heard? I know it was. I know it was. But five days pass, six days pass, and then seven. Are you going through a period of waiting today? Maybe there was a time where you clearly heard God's voice and you know he was leading you in this direction, but then you hear or you experience this pause. Is God still leading? Did I misunderstand him? Was this the way in which I should go? Maybe the voices of skepticism are seeking to challenge your faith. Maybe it's the voices saying, your standards are too high, just settle. Maybe it's the voices saying that the calling you believe God has placed on your heart is not for you. What are the voices of skepticism or doubt, or maybe it's the voice saying, if you are the son of God, if you are the daughter of God. The voices in that day which Noah heard. There were relatively few biblical references stating what Noah did during those 120 years, though of course we can surmise he had a nail and a hammer and a saw and he was busy at work. But 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 does give us this important insight. In 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 where it says that Noah was a herald or a preacher of what? of righteousness. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Notice, and again, I found it interesting as I was contemplating that this week, notice what Noah was known for being a preacher of. 
the Bible does not record that Noah was a preacher of the flood. Though he did that, the Bible does not record that Noah was a preacher of impending destruction. Though he did that, the Bible simply records that he was a preacher of righteousness. Because you see, the core of his message through which all other warnings came was the righteousness of faith that comes from God alone. The core of his message, which through all other messages came, was the message of righteousness by faith in God alone. A timeless message for us today. In Luke chapter 8, 18 and verse 8, Jesus asks this question, and, and when you hear these words, you can almost feel his heart crying out. When the Son of Man cometh, Jesus asks, will he find faith on the earth? The dark, angry clouds begin to roll in with intensity. Streaks of lightning lit up the sky as the terrified individuals outside of the ark turn to one another in fear and confusion. As they turn the faces to the sky, drops of rain began to fall. Nearly 2,000 years have passed since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And while on that weekend the angels may have celebrated, while they may have sung for joy, his followers here on earth were doing anything but. They were hiding, they were terrified, they were questioning whether or not the last three and a half years had been wasted, whether or not this had been a great deception. The voices of the skeptics rang in their ears. In fact, the only ones who truly believed were those who were opposed to Jesus. They were the ones that said, hey, put up a big boulder and let's seal it. And let's stick Roman guards here. Let's make sure that body of Jesus goes nowhere because we remember what he said. But on that day, his disciples doubted, fearing whether their demise might soon be, his demise might soon be their own. But on that resurrection morn, just as in Noah's day, thousands of years before. The skepticism of the non-believers and even the doubts of the faithful could not keep the flood from coming. They could not keep Jesus from rising 
from the dead. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how strong and philosophical your arguments may be. Bring on the skepticism, but Jesus is still rising. Jesus and his word cannot be stopped. Second Timothy, turn with me there. To Second Timothy chapter 2 and verses 11 to 13. Second Timothy chapter 2 echoes this promise in verses 11 through 13. And here the Bible shares, This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. In verse 13, focus here, it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. I find this passage interesting because it says, well, if you do this, he's going to do that. You do this, he's going to do that. You do this, he's not going to change. He can't. Because his word by its very nature is true. And it is faithful. What brought fear to those outside of the ark What brought fear to those opposed to the ministry of Jesus Christ? What brought fear to those outside? Brought strength and hope and courage to those who believed. And I believe that that, too, is our strength today. The firm foundation of God's word, though tested, remains true. Now, more than ever, we can ground our lives, our hope, our peace, our confidence in the one thing that never changes, in the one thing that never fails. If you're like the most, or if you're like the rest of humanity this year, and this past year, you've gone through a lot of changes. You've experienced the instability, and how quickly things can change in our world. Now more than ever, people are crying out. In fact, people are taking their lives out of this fear of change and instability, out of this question, is there hope? Is there anything that I can place my trust in today? Where is my firm foundation. And I believe that the same foundation that stood in the days of Noah, the foundation that was created in the days of creation, the foundation upon which Abraham stood, the foundation upon which Joseph ministered, the foundation upon which Daniel prophesied, the foundation upon which Jesus died and rose again, is the same foundation upon which we can stand. God cannot and will not deny himself. And these things, though written years ago, they were written, why? 
so that you, so that I could have hope. The hope which we so dearly need. Voltaire, the great French philosopher of the 1700s, once made this statement. In a hundred years, he says, the Bible would be a forgotten and unknown book. A hundred years later, the Geneva Bible Society was based out of his home. This Bible cannot stand, and yet there it is in his living room hundred years later. Malachi 3, 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill? Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Some years ago, I was mentoring a group of teenagers, and there was one teenager who I'll just refer to as Jonathan. And this teenager had come from a very difficult background. He had experienced abuse and abandonment, his parents struggled with addiction, and soon he himself also did. And I remember talking with this 17-year-old boy who, again, had experienced abuse and abandonment, and he told me, he said, you know, Krissa, I just don't feel like I can trust God. And I said, you know what, Jonathan? You're right. You can't. And of course, that got his attention. You're the, you're the Bible worker. You're the church leader. You know, what are you saying? I said, you know, you can't. Because trust comes through relationship. You have to know God in order to be able to trust him. But I guarantee if you invest the time in getting to know God, you will find that he is the only one that will never fail you. He is the only one worthy of your trust. And he is worthy of your questions. God is not afraid of questions. Question all day long. But question from a heart that is seeking. Never allow the voices of skepticism to discourage you from the identity and the foundation that you have. A foundation that can withstand all tests and all questions but a foundation that I believe we, we too can be far too quick to negate, whether we consciously recognize it or not. Remembering that God's word is true. What he has promised you, he will fulfill. Whether you are in the time of waiting or whether you're in the fruition, as the rain begins to fall, the word of God will and does remain. Maybe today you've come here with your own questions. And I would encourage you to ask those questions. 
I would encourage you, test it, wrestle with the scriptures for yourself. The word that I believe does not fail. Or maybe as you come here today, you recognize that you have unconsciously adopted skepticism and deism into your own life. Questioning whether God cares about your present reality or maybe praying prayers that that you are able to accomplish. And maybe God is convicting us and saying, I can do so much more. I am the God who created the earth. I'm the God who created the universe. I'm the God that spoke and it was in existence. And I'm the God that still speaks today in my word. Believe me. Trust me. And I will fulfill. Wherever we come from, whatever journey we find ourselves in, God's word remains true. His promises today are for us. And just like he worked through the men and women of old, just as he bolstered them through the truth found in his word, God is eager to miraculously intervene and reveal himself in the world today. And he will. But will we choose to allow it to be through us. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Yes, Lord, he will. And by his grace, may that faith, may that foundation be found within us. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I want to thank you so much for the beauty of your word. Father, sometimes we just think of it as old stories, relevant for men and women 2,000 years ago, but God, your word is real. It is alive in our lives today. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the word that was spoken thousands of years ago and realized in the life of Noah can be spoken into our lives today. The promises that you have shown again and again, Lord, you desire, you crave to work through us. And Father, I pray for your forgiveness where we have doubted you, where we have thought you were distant when you craved, craved to be present. When you are the God of the impossibilities, when you are the God beyond our comprehensions. And so, Father, today we come to you awed by your presence, valuing the incredible gift that you have given to us through this love letter, your word. And so, Father, this week I pray as we come to you with with true questions and as we seek you by faith, may our confidence in you grow stronger. May our love for you be deeper. And by your grace and through your favor, may you find faith on earth and may it be lived in us. We thank you. We pray for this blessing in your son's precious name. 
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.